Welcome to the Sleep Charming Podcast, the podcast where I help you drift off for a good night's sleep or simply take a moment to relax. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review or a rating. So sit back, take a deep breath, and let me read you an old story. Got your rubbers on? called Cousin Stickles as Valency left the house. Christine Stickles had never once forgotten to ask that question when Valency went out on a damp day. Yes, have you got your flannel petticoat on? asked Mrs. Frederick. No. Doss, I really do not understand you. Do you want to catch your death of cold again? Her voice implied that Valency had died of a cold several times already. Mother, I don't need a flannel petticoat. My satin one is warm enough. Doss, remember you had bronchitis two years ago. Go and do as you're told. Valency went, though nobody will ever know just how near she came to hurling the rubber plant into the street before she went. She hated that grey flannel petticoat more than any other garment she owned. Olive never had to wear flannel petticoats. Olive wore ruffled silk and sheer lawn and flimsy laced flounces. But Olive's father had married money, and Olive never had bronchitis. So there you were. Are you sure you didn't leave the soap in the water? demanded Mrs. Frederick. But Valency was gone. She turned at the corner and looked back down the ugly, prim, respectable street where she lived. The Sterling House was the ugliest on it. More like a red brick box than anything else. Too high for its breadth, and made still higher by a bulbous glass cupola on top. About it was the desolate, barren piece of an old house whose life is lived. There was a very pretty little house, with leaded casements and dubbed gables just around the corner. A new house, one of those houses you love the minute you see them. Clayton Markley had built it for his bride. He was to be married to Jenny Lloyd in June. The little house, it was said, was furnished from attic to cellar in complete readiness for its mistress. I don't envy Jenny the man, thought Valancy sincerely. Clayton Markley was not one of her many ideals. But I do envy her the house. It's such a nice young house. If I could only have a house of my own, ever so poor, so tiny, but my own. But then, she said bitterly, there's no use in yowling for the moon when you can't even get a tallow candle. In dreamland, nothing would do Valency but a castle of pale sapphire. In real life, she would have been fully satisfied with a little house of her own. She envied Jenny Lloyd more fiercely than ever today. Jenny was not so much better looking than she was, and not so very much younger. Yet she was to have this delightful house, and the nicest little Wedgwood teacups, Valency had seen them, an open fireplace, and a monogrammed linen, hem-stitched tablecloths, and a china closet. Why did everything come to some girls, and nothing to others? It wasn't fair. Valency was once more seething with rebellion, as she walked along a prim, dowdy little figure in her shabby raincoat and a three-year-old hat. 
splashed occasionally by the mud of a passing motor, with its insulting shrieks. Motors were still rather a novelty in Deerwood, though they were common in Port Lawrence, and most of the summer residents up at Muskoka had them. In Deerwood, only some of the smart set had them, for Deerwood was divided into sets. There was the smart set, the intellectual set, the old family set, of which the Sterlings were members, the common run, and a few pariahs. Not one of the Sterling clan had as yet condescended to a motor, though Olive was teasing her father to have one. Valency had never ever been in a motor car, but she did not hanker after this. In truth, she felt rather afraid of motor cars, especially at night. They seemed to be too much like big, purring beasts that might turn and crash you, or make some terrible, savage leap somewhere. On the steep mountain trails around her blue castle, only gaily comparisoned steeds might proudly pace. In real life, Valency would have been quite contented to drive a buggy behind a nice horse. She got a buggy drive only when some uncle or cousin remembered to fling her a chance, like a bone to a dog. Of course she must buy the tea at Uncle Benjamin's grocery store. To buy it anywhere else was unthinkable. Yet Valency hated to go to Uncle Benjamin's store on her 29th birthday. There was no hope that he would not remember it. Why? demanded Uncle Benjamin, leeringly, as he tied up her tea. Are young ladies like bad grammarians? Valency, with Uncle Benjamin's will in the background of her mind, said meekly. I don't know why. Because, chuckled Uncle Benjamin, they can't decline matrimony. The two clerks, Joe Hammond and Claude Bertram, chuckled also, and Valency disliked them a little more than ever. On the first day Claude Bertram had seen her in the store, she had heard him whisper to Joe, who is that? And Joe had said, Valency Sterling, one of the Deerwood old maids. Curable or incurable? Claude asked with a snicker, evidently thinking the question was very clever. Valency smarted anew with the sting of that old recollection. 29, Uncle Benjamin was saying. Dear me, Doss, you're dangerously near the second corner and not even thinking of getting married yet? 29? seems impossible. That Uncle Benjamin said an original thing. Uncle Benjamin said, How time does fly. I think it crawls, said Valency passionately. Passion was so alien to Uncle Benjamin's conception of Valency that he did not know what to make of her. To cover his confusion, he asked another conundrum as he tied up her beans. Cousin Stickles had remembered at the last moment that they must have beans. Beans are cheap and filling. What two ages are apt to prove illusory, asked Uncle Benjamin, and not waiting for Valency to give it up, he added, Mirage and marriage. M-I-R-A-G-E is pronounced mirage, said Valency shortly, picking up her tea and beans. For the moment, she did not care whether Uncle Benjamin cut her out of his will or not. She walked out of the store while Uncle Benjamin stared after her with his mouth open. Then, he shook his head. Poor Doss is taking it hard, he said. Valency was sorry by the time she reached the next crossing. 
Why has she lost her patience like that? Uncle Benjamin would be annoyed and would likely tell her mother that Doss had been impertinent. To me, and her mother would lecture her for a week. I've held my tongue for twenty years, thought Valancy. Why couldn't I have held it once more? Yes, it was just twenty, Valancy reflected, since she had first been twitted with her loverless condition. She remembered the bitter moment perfectly. She was just nine years old, and she was standing alone on the school playground, while the other girls of her class were playing a game in which she must be chosen by a boy as his partner before you could play. Nobody had chosen Valancy, little, pale, black-haired Valancy, with her prim, long-sleeved apron. Oh, said a pretty little girl to her, I'm so sorry for you, you haven't gotten a bow. Valancy had said defiantly, as she continued to say for twenty years, I don't want a bow. But this afternoon, Valancy, once and for all, stopped saying that. I'm going to be honest with myself anyhow, she thought savagely. Uncle Benjamin's riddles hurt me. I do want to be married. I want a house of my own. I want a husband of my own. I want sweet little fat babies of my own. Valancy stopped, suddenly, aghast at her own recklessness. She felt sure that Reverend Dr. Stalling, who passed her at this moment, read her thoughts and disapproved of them thoroughly. Valancy was afraid of Dr. Stalling and had been afraid of him ever since the Sunday, 23 years before he had first come to St. Albans. Valancy had been too late for Sunday school that day, so she had gone into the church timidly and sat in their pew. No one else was in the church, nobody except the new rector. Dr. Stalling. Dr. Stalling stood up, in front of the choir door, beckoned to her, and said sternly, Little boy, come up here. Valancy had stared around her. There was no little boy. There was no one in all the huge church but herself. This strange man with the blue glasses couldn't mean her. She was not a boy. Little boy repeated Dr. Stalling, more sternly still shaking his forefinger fiercely at her. Come up here at once. Valancy arose, as if hypnotised, and walked up the aisle. She was too terrified to do anything else. What dreadful thing was going to happen to her? What had happened to her? Had she actually turned into a boy? She came to a stop in front of Dr. Stalling. Dr. Stalling shook his forefinger, with a long, knuckly finger, at her and said, Little boy, take off your hat. Valancy took off her hat. She had a scrawny little pigtail hanging down her back, but Dr. Stalling was short-sighted and did not perceive it. Little boy, go back to your seat and always take off your hat in church, remember. Valancy went back to her seat, carrying her hat like an automaton. Presently, her mother came in. Doss, said Mrs. Sterling, what do you mean by taking off your hat? Put it on instantly. Valancy put it on instantly. She was cold with fear, lest Dr. Sterling should immediately summon her up front again. She would have to go, of course, and it never occurred to her that one could disobey the rector and the church was full of people now. But what would she do if that horrible stabbing forefinger was shaken at her again before all those people? Valancy sat through the whole service in an agony of dread and was sick for a week afterwards. Nobody knew why.
Mrs. Frederick again bemoaned herself of the delicate child. Dr. Stalling found out his mistake and laughed it over to Valancy, who did not laugh. She never got over the dread of Dr. Stalling, and now to be caught by him on the street corner thinking such things? Valancy got her John Foster book, Magic of Wings. His latest, all about birds, said Mrs. Clarkson. She had almost decided that she would go home instead of going to see Dr. Trent. Her courage had failed her. She was afraid of offending Uncle James, afraid of angering her mother, afraid of facing gruff, shaggy-browed old Dr. Trent, who would probably tell her he had told Cousin Gladys that her trouble was entirely imaginary. No, she would not go. She would get a bottle of Redfern's purple pills instead. Redfern's purple pills were the standard medicine of the Sterling clan. Had they not cured second cousin Geraldine when five doctors had given up on her? Valancy always felt very sceptical concerning the virtues of the purple pills, but there might be something in them, and it was easier to take them than to face Dr. Trent alone. She would glance over the magazines in the reading room a few minutes and then go home. Valancy tried to read a story, but it made her furious. On every page was the picture of a heroine surrounded by adorning men. And here was she, Valancy Sterling, who could not get a solitary bow. Valancy slammed the magazine shut. She opened Magic of Wings. Her eyes fell on the paragraph that changed her life. Fear is the original sin, wrote John Foster. Almost all the evil in the world has its origin in the fact that someone is afraid of something. It is a cold, slimy serpent coiling about you. It is horrible to live with fear, and it is of all things degrading. Valancy shut Magic of Wings and stood up. She would go. She would go and see Dr. Trent. The ordeal was not so dreadful after all. Dr. Trent was as gruff and abrupt as usual, but he did not tell her her ailment was imaginary. After he had listened to her symptoms and asked a few questions and made a quick examination, he sat for a moment, looking at her quite intently. Valancy thought he looked as if he were sorry for her. She caught her breath for a moment. Was the trouble serious? Oh, it couldn't be. Surely, it really hadn't bothered her much. Only lately had gotten a little worse. Dr. Trent opened his mouth, but before he could speak, the telephone at his elbow rang sharply. He picked up the receiver. Valancy watching him saw his face change suddenly as he listened. Dr. Trent dropped the receiver, dashed out of the room and upstairs without even a glance at Valancy. She heard him rushing madly about overhead, barking out a few remarks to somebody, presumably his housekeeper. Then he came tearing down the stairs with a club bag in his hand, snatched his hat and coat from the rack, jerked open the street door, and rushed down the street in the direction of the station. Valancy sat alone in the little office, feeling more absolutely foolish than she had ever felt before in her life. Foolish and humiliated. So this was all that had come of her heroic determination to live up to John Foster and cast fear aside? 
Not only was she a failure as a relative, and non-existent as a sweetheart or friend, but she was not even of any importance as a patient. Dr. Trent had forgotten her very presence and his excitement over whatever message had come by telephone. She had gained nothing by ignoring Uncle James and flying in the face of family tradition. For a moment, she was afraid she was going to cry. It was all so ridiculous. Then she heard Dr. Trent's housekeeper coming down the stairs. Valency rose and went to the office door. The doctor forgot about me, she said, with a twisted smile. Well, that's too bad, said Mrs. Patterson, sympathetically. But it wasn't much wonder. Poor man. That was a telegram they phoned over from the port. His son has been terribly injured in an auto accident in Montreal. The doctor had just ten minutes to catch the train. I don't know what he'll do if anything happens to Ned. He's just bound up in the boy. You'll have to come again, Miss Sterling. I hope it's nothing serious. Oh no, nothing serious, agreed Valency. She felt a little less humiliated. It was no wonder poor Dr. Trent had forgotten her at such a moment. Nevertheless, she felt very flat and discouraged as she went down the street. Valency went home by the shortcut of Lover's Lane. She did not often go through Lover's Lane, but it was getting near supper time and it would never do to be late. Lover's Lane wound back of the village under great elms and maples and deserved its name. It was hard to go there at any time and not find some canoodling couple or young girls in pairs, arms intertwined. Valency didn't know which made her feel more self-conscious and uncomfortable. This evening, she encountered both. She met Connie Hale and Kate Bailey in new pink organdy dresses with flowers stuck coquettishly in their glossy bare hair. Valency had never had a pink dress or worn flowers in her hair. Then she passed a young couple she didn't know, dandering along, oblivious to everything but themselves. The young man's arm was around the girl's waist, quite shamelessly. Valency had never walked with a man's arm about her. She felt that she ought to be shocked. They might leave that sort of thing for the screening twilight, at least, but she wasn't shocked. In another flash of desperate, stark honesty, she owned to herself that she was merely envious. When she passed them, she felt quite sure that they were laughing at her, pitying her. There's that queer little old maid, Valency Sterling. They say she never had a bow in her whole life. Valency fairly ran to get out of Lover's Lane. Never had she felt so utterly colourless and skinny and insignificant. Just where Lover's Lane debouched on the street, an old car was parked. Valency knew that car well, by sound at least, and everybody in Deerwood knew it. This was before the phrase Tin Lizzie had come into circulation in Deerwood, at least. But if it had been known, this car was the tiniest of Lizzie's, though it was not a Ford, but an old grey slosson. Nothing more battered and disreputable could be imagined. It was Barney Snaith's car, and Barney himself was just scrambling up from under it in overalls plastered with mud. Valency gave him a swift, fugitive look as she hurried by. This was only the second time she'd ever seen the notorious Barney Snaith. 
though she had heard enough about him in the five years that she had been living up back in Muskoka. The first time had been nearly a year ago, on the Muskoka Road. He had been crawling from under his car then, too, and he had given her a cheerful grin as she went by. A little whimsical grin that gave him the look of an amused gnome. He didn't look bad. She didn't believe he was bad, in spite of the wild yarns that were always being told of him. Of course, he went tearing in that terrible old Grace Slosson through Deerwood at all hours when decent people were in bed, often with old Roaring Abel, who made the night hideous with his howls. Both of them dead drunk, my dear, and everyone knew that he was an escaped convict, and a defaulting bank clerk, and a murderer in hiding, and an infidel, and an illegitimate son of an old Roaring Abel gay and the father of Roaring Abel's illegitimate grandchildren, and a counterfeiter, and a forger, and a few other awful things. But still, Valancy didn't believe he was bad. Nobody with a smile like that could be bad, no matter what he had done. It was that night the Prince of the Blue Castle changed, from being a grim jaw and hair with a dash of premature grey, to a rankish individual with overlong tawny hair, dashed with red, dark brown eyes, and ears that stuck out just enough to give him an alert look, but not enough to be called flying jibs. But he still retained something a little grim about the jaw. Barney's snake looked even more disreputable than usual just now. It was very evident that he hadn't shaved for days, and his hands and arms, bare to the shoulders, were black with grease. But he was whistling gleefully to himself, and he seemed so happy that Valancy envied him. She envied him, his light-heartedness, and his irresponsibility, and his mysterious little cabin upon an island in Lake Mistowis. Even his rackety old grey slosson. Neither he or his car had to be respectable and live up to traditions. When he rattled past her a few minutes later, bareheaded, leaning back in his lizzie at a raffish angle, his long hair blowing in the wind, a villainous-looking old black pipe in his mouth, she envied him again. Men have the best of it, no doubt about that. This outlaw was happy, whatever he was or wasn't. She, Valancy Sterling, respectable, well-behaved to the last degree, was unhappy and had always been unhappy. So there you were. Valancy was just in time for supper. The sun had clouded over, and a dismal, drizzling rain was falling again. Cousin Stickles had the neuralgia. Valancy had to do the family darning, and there was no time for magic of wings. Can't the darning wait till tomorrow, she pleaded. Tomorrow will bring its own duties, said Mrs. Frederick, inexorably. Valancy darned all evening and listened to Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles talking the eternal, niggling gossip of the clan as they knitted dearly at interminable black stockings. They discussed second cousin Lillian's approaching wedding in all its bearings. On the whole, they approved. Second cousin Lillian was doing well for herself. Though she hasn't hurried, said Cousin Stickles, she must be twenty-five. There have not fortunately been many old maids in our connection, said Mrs. Frederick bitterly. Valancy flinched. 
she'd run the darning needle into her finger. Third cousin Aaron Gray had been scratched by a cat and had blood poisoning in his finger. Cats are most dangerous animals, said Mrs. Frederick. I would never have a cat about the house. She glared significantly at Valency through her terrible glasses. Once five years ago, Valency had asked if she might have a cat. She had never referred to it since. But Mrs. Frederick still suspected her of harbouring the unlawful desire in her heart of hearts. Once Valency sneezed. Now, in the Sterling Code, it's very bad form to sneeze in public. You can always repress a sneeze by pressing your finger about your upper lip, said Mrs. Frederick, rebunkingly. Half past nine o'clock and so, as Mrs. Peppies would say, to bed. But first, Cousin Stickle's neuralgic back must be rubbed with Red Fern's liniment. Valency did that. Valency always had to do it. She hated the smell of Red Fern's liniment. She hated the smug, beaming, portly, bewhiskered, bespeckled picture of Dr. Redfern on the bottle. Her fingers smelled of the horrible stuff after she got into bed, in spite of all the scrubbing she gave them. Valency's day of destiny had come and gone. She ended it as she begun it, in tears. <laughs>